Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Decoding Westworld, an unofficial podcast about the HBO original series Westworld. I'm David Chen. I'm Joanna Robinson. And welcome to the show, ladies and gentlemen. You can find more of our episodes at decodingwestworld.com. You can also email us at decodingwestworld at gmail.com. What we do on this podcast is uh, we recap every episode of Westworld uh, and discuss the crazy theories surrounding each episode. This week we'll be uh, discussing Season 1, Episode 4, Dissonance Theory. Uh, so we'll be spoiling everything through Season 1, Episode 4, Dissonance, Dissonance Theory. Uh, we won't be spoiling anything from future week's episodes, though, and that includes anything on the next time on Preview that HBO likes to give us. So uh, before we get to this week's episode, I think we should follow up on a few items from last week's episode. One of the things a lot of people wrote into us about uh, was the glasses that Bernard wears. I commented that I don't understand why he's looking over the glasses all the time. It seems like he's not even using them or he's wearing them incorrectly. Uh, but turns out a lot of people think that uh, they are reading glasses or perhaps some kind of uh, transition glasses where like you could use you need to look at them to see some things but not other things. Uh, basically, your eyes get worse as you get older, I think is pretty much what a lot of uh, listeners are trying to tell us. Right, Joanna? Sure. Yeah. Um, so, Unless you're a robot. Mm, mm. <laughs> Maybe he is a robot and doesn't need the glasses and they're just part of his backstory, you know, part of decoration or something like that. Uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, so thanks for all the people who wrote in correcting us about that. Uh, now, we had discussed last week, like, why was that episode entitled Chestnut? Why was season one, episode two entitled Chestnut? Uh, and we had some speculations, right? But I don't know if we ever concluded on something. Uh, got a bunch of emails, including this one from Courtney B., uh, who writes in uh, that uh, from the Wikipedia page, chestnut is a British slang term for an old joke, often as like, like an old chestnut. The term is also used for a piece of music in the repertoire that has grown stale or hackneyed with too much repetition. Plausible explanation for the term is given by the Oxford English Dictionary. Uh, it originates from a play called The Broken Sword by William Diamond, in which one character keeps repeating the same stories, one of them about a cork tree, uh, and is interrupted each time by another character who says, Chestnut, you mean? I have heard you tell the joke 27 times, and I am sure it was a chestnut. This play was performed in 1816, but the term did not come into widespread usage until the 1880s. Uh, so that email comes from Courtney, and yeah, chestnut basically means something that you repeat all the time, that old chestnut or what have you, and in season one, episode two, uh, Ford was basically putting the kibosh on Sizemore's new narrative, uh, implying that we had done all that before. So I feel like that is a pretty solid explanation. Joanna, you agree? Uh, Sure. It <laughs> sounds like you not agreeing. Well, it's it's just an interestingly abstract title when all the other ones have been so 
or, or rather the original and the stray are so straightforward. So if we want to, to take the chestnut to mean a thing that's worn out with repetitive retelling, um, then I would apply it to Maeve. Like, I don't consider her worn out, but we see her tell the same story three times. Uh, so if we're going to call anything a chestnut, I would call, I would be comfortable calling Maeve the chestnut. Um, there's also some people who think it's the gun that Dolores uncovers in that episode because it's an older version, possibly, of a gun we see elsewhere. So that old chestnut, I don't know. But uh, I like I, I heard a lot of theories this week. Uh, I think they're all pretty interesting. So yeah, yeah. thank you. Uh, the only other thing I wanted to mention is we had mentioned the bicameral uh, mind uh, in last week's episode. But I don't think I ever really like went into what it was, right? Uh, and I, I have a feeling it's going to become important, so I just wanted to reiterate uh, what it was. So there, I, there's like a, a site online that has the episode scripts uh, just like typed out. They're not formatted or anything, but it's just like the words typed out. That's super useful. Um, but uh, in, in this scene, Ford, played by Anthony Hopkins, is talking about Arnold uh, and. Uh, talking about Arnold's attempt to create consciousness. He imagined it as a pyramid, memory, improvisation, self-interest, and at the top, he never got there. But he had a notion of what it might be. He based it on a theory of consciousness called the bicameral mind, the idea that primitive man believed his thoughts to be the voice of the gods. Uh, and then, like, I thought it was debunked, but as a theory for understanding the human mind, it was debunked, but not as a blueprint for building an artificial one. You see, Arnold built a version of that cognition in which the hosts heard their programming as an inner monologue with the hopes that in time, their own voice would take over. It was a way to bootstrap consciousness, but Arnold hadn't considered two things. One, that in this place, the last thing you want the host to be is conscious, and two, the other group who considered their thoughts to be the voices of the gods, to which Bernard responds, lunatics um so i just anyway uh we, we had mentioned it but i wanted to reiterate that like this is the the theory undergirding the consciousness uh of the hosts in the show and i think it's probably going to come to pass that like uh the robots are giving themselves the commands or you know they think they are like receiving commands from gods but it's in fact like like just programming that's gone awry like mm-hmm. it seems like that's what the show is setting uh the hosts up for Right. So, yeah. So when we hear Dolores, um, because it's not just like when we see the hosts sort of talking to someone, talking to Arnold, and really they're talking to themselves. Um, It's not just that, but we also hear a voice sort of talking to Dolores, it seems. Right. Like, kill him, you know, like that kind of thing. Oh, uh, I don't, I more like remember. Um, <laughs> well, you we choose to remember the remember part. Like when, <laughs> yeah. when he she's trapped by like Rebus, you know, oh, oh, she okay. hears a voice that's like kill him, you know, or okay. shoot him or whatever. Gotcha, gotcha, yeah. gotcha. Yeah. Um, so, and and to me, that sounded a lo- sounds a lot like uh, Jeffrey Wright. And in this week's episode, we get a remember for Dolores that to me sounded a lot like Anthony Hopkins. So it kind of feels like the voices of these god-like figures that she's talked to in the past and then eventually she's going to hear – it's her own internal monologue and eventually she'll hear it hopefully in her own voice is my my guess. And um, 
you know, and so maybe some of the older bots who are talking to Arnold, they're hearing the voice of Arnold because at one point he was a godlike figure who programmed them, who put in all those voice commands like uh, violent, these violence delays have violent ends, that sort of stuff. We think our old voice commands that Arnold worked into the system. Right. So. But that, that basically, like, if you are hearing – if you're hearing the voices as, like, commands from other people, that's one thing. But if you're hearing the voices as – uh, f- like things that you can act on unilaterally, it's different, right? Like, like that. There, there. You reach a point where the voices have more power, and that that is like a frightening prospect. I think is what it's building towards, right? Um, Possibly, or just interpreting the monologue, the the voices in your head as your own internal monologue, as yeah, you being able to have your own voice would take over, right? And, and if you hear right. your own voice, then you're going to be more likely to obey it, right? If you think it's, you know, uh, coming from you, Inception style, another Nolan family creation. So, uh, <laughs> so yeah. Anyway, I, I feel like it's important enough to just like pause and, yes. and revisit that. Thank um, you. But why don't we dive into this week's episode? So last week we ended. Uh, season one, episode three of Astray, with Dolores collapsing into William's arms by the fire. Uh, and this week, we open on Dolores and Bernard having another one of their chats. Uh, and Dolores has apparently just gone through a big ordeal. Bernard shuts off her uh, affect so that they can have a normal conversation. During this whole time, by the way, whenever they do this, Evan Rachel Wood is basically giving a masterclass in acting like literally she's going to like one emotional extreme and then is told to shut it down and then needs to like become another person entirely and you see it all in like one continuous shot on screen it is pretty amazing uh but anyway she talks to bernard about her uh parents dying and at first i thought oh this is happening after the events of last week's episode but in fact uh doesn't mention running off with uh, a guest doesn't mention running off with William, you know, and so the show Joanna is playing games with its timeline with us, right? With this scene, do you agree? Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess the most straightforward linear interpretation you could have is that Bernard sort of snatched her while she was sleeping, right? And, and then, then like, talked deposited to her, her off, like, and then put her back. Uh- <laughs> that strains credulity. Also, she didn't mention any of the crazy stuff that happened last week, so. I think she said her parents are dead. Yeah, but like, yeah, and then she ran. Yeah, you're right, I guess. But then she didn't mention like collapsing in a fire someplace. I don't know. You're right. right. You're right. It's possible. No, it's possible. Uh, no, I don't think it, that is right. I'm just saying that that could be the most straightforward interpretation. Yeah. I think we are dealing with two timelines, two distinct timelines. Yeah, yeah. I'm back on the 30 years previous boat. Really. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll talk more about whether that theory is plausible at the end when we talk about crazy theories. Let's be sure to mention the piano player, by the way, at the end of this week's episode of the podcast. Uh, But uh, in this dialogue scene, Dolores and Bernard talk, and uh, Dolores basically describes a uh, mental, intellectual, and emotional awakening, right? That that basically is her becoming more and more human. and that's when Bernard mentions the maze to her, right? And she, he says, like, finally says more about what the maze is. Um, the goal is to find the center of it. And uh, that's, you know, all he says at this point, but we learn a little bit more about the maze later in the episode. And then uh, Bernard presents to her the choice of whether she wants to be uh, more human or not. And she says that she wants to be more human. She wants to be free is how she puts it, right? Yeah. Um, so... 
Any insights you want to highlight from this uh, this scene before we move on? Uh, one I would say is that you know he offers to erase when he offers to erase the pain of losing her parents, and she says like the pain is all I have left of them. Bernard said an almost identical thing when he was talking to sort of his wife on Skype about um, his dead son. He was like the pain is the only thing I have left of him. That's right. So yeah. this is either like her sort of adopting some of Bernard's philosophies through conversation with them, or they've been they've both been hardwired with the same programming because mm. they're because they're both robots mm. i'm just saying yep no, very <laughs> plausible dolores wakes up next to william uh she has a gun in her hand uh uh-huh. now in the show notes you you put like this is the shiny new gun uh are you saying this is the gun that like theoretically can shoot hosts or is this the rebus's gun i i just assumed it was rebus's gun but i guess she didn't have it with her like last what? week when she collapsed what I'm saying is that I think they are – they could be the same gun. If we are dealing with two – I mean the, like – The same I, gun meaning the gun she found in the drawer that just vanished last week, right? Yeah. And then the gun she later finds uh, that Rebus drops before he's about to rape her, right? You're saying uh, this could be the same gun or – well, to be more clear, the gun she pulled up out of the ground. The gun she pulled up out of the ground and the gun that she has in this week's episode. Off his could be belt same. could yeah. be the same gun. The gun off his belt is new. The gun she dug up off the ground could be 30 years older is what I'm saying. Hmm. Hmm. All right. Um, so it's, it's significantly diminished. The gun now, like, listen, this is probably a, a common make and model of a gun. In are they even called make and model? Eh, that's yeah. car thing, right? Uh, this is a common uh, make of a gun, I'm sure in in Westworld. <laughs> but um, I think it's sloppy storytelling to have two different guns. If she if if Dolores is going to have a gun, it should probably be one gun. Is is how I feel about it. Uh, well, yeah, and also like why, you know, presumably William. I guess he, he didn't fear her, but uh, why? Why would they have left her with the gun? You know, like would they not have been afraid of what could happen with that? I don't know. Well, and we didn't really see the gun on her when she wandered into camp, but like that, I don't. You know, I'm not nitpicking that. I'm just saying. She, we've seen her with two guns, right? A gun she pulled out of the ground that like was in her drawer and then was not in her drawer, and the gun she pulled off Rebus's belt before she shot and killed him right. and ran off. Uh, they're the same gun. I've I've scrutinized the images, right? <laughs> they're the same gun. Only one just looks. 30 years older. So to Thir- me, that- 30 years older or just older, Joanna? Uh, older. So to <laughs> which, me, which one looks older? The one she pulled out of the ground. Right, right. So to me, this could be if we are dealing with two timelines, which if the show is doing two timelines, they are playing some dirty pool in terms of trying to trick the viewer into thinking it's one timeline. But let's say we are tracking two timelines. Uh, the age of the gun might be a way, if it's the same gun, might be a way to tell which timeline we're in. All right. I don't sorry, know. I feel, like I, already, I feel like I already left the, the two timeline train behind last week. Okay. But, um, but if you're back on the train, then, you know, maybe I can be persuaded to, to hop aboard again as well. Anyway, uh, let's, so... Dolores and William, we're just going to talk through like all the stuff that happens to that plot line, right? Ready. So they, uh, uh, you know, Dolores wakes up. Uh, William and Logan, you know, kind of try to figure out what to do. Um, uh, William wants to keep, you know, pursuing the bounty that they're on. Logan's like, dude, 
I am not spending $40,000 a day just to do this. Actually, that's something that I think they mentioned last week was how much it costs per day to do the, right. the Westworld, $40,000. Let me ask you a question, Joanna. Do you feel like that is a reasonable price? Like, well, we have no idea what like inflation is. Right. right? So maybe $40,000 is like $3,000 in today's money. Right. Right. I assume it's still a lot because apparently, like, I got into an argument with an accountant about this, about Westworld, actually. And he was like, uh, how could even $40,000 a day possibly cover the repairs of however many robots they damage every day and that sort of thing? Um, well, they clearly guess, have economies of scale there. But yes, continue. Well, my guess is that they have uh, investors, which we know they have investors. So I think it's not just pure profit from the guests that's yeah. keeping this whole operation it's afloat. Like, it's like a freemium model, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> All that no. being said, we have no idea how much $40,000 is worth right. on Mars or wherever they are, but, you know, whenever they are. You, know. you learn a little bit more about William and Logan. Like, William is going to join Logan's family. Logan's family has a stake in Westworld, like a business stake, mm-hmm. and says, like, with our family, everything is business. Um, so, anyway, they, they go off to... Uh, I have a feeling that familial connection will come into play like in a big way later on, but uh, they go off into uh, into a town. Uh, and also, we should say here, you've, you've noted in the show notes that uh, Stubbs says to flag Dolores, given that she's off loop, um, but they can't um, – what do you call it? They can't tell like if it's going to be disruptive because Ford is disrupting everything with the new storyline. Uh, Joanna, don't you feel like that scene with Stubbs seems to indicate that this is all just one timeline? I mean, if you want me, I'm ready to talk about this. If you want me to, <laughs> I I'm ready. I'm ready. In in my understanding, uh, we should clarify. We should clarify that like the t- the theory that Joanna is 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 referring to is the idea that Williams' character played by. Jimmy Simpson is the same character as the man in black played by Ed Harris. And that like Ed Harris's character is just like the man in black is just 30 years later version of William. Right. Uh, and that the show is doing some creative cutting uh, to make it seem like these are all taking place in the same present day, but that in fact they're taking place 30 years apart. So, right. So in my theory of, <laughs> of this, uh, you know, 30 years apart, or so uh, timeline is that um, the reason why they say, oh, we can't tell whether or not she's with a guest is because in the present, Dolores is wandering around by herself on a mission from Bernard to find the maze. And that's why we, later we see her in the town. She walks in by herself. And then later we see William there with her. So let's assume, if I'm right, Dolores is wandering around on this maze mission by herself in the present and in the past she's with William. So when she's off her loop and, you know, someone tells Stubbs she's off her loop, he's like, go get her. Uh, That's in the present. But he but like the whole fudging of like we can't tell if she's with a guest or not to me seems part of the really dirty pool they're playing about trying to hide the fact that they're doing two timelines. I see. I think it's to possible. Me. So, ba- so basically, the de- you know her being with William in the show basically happened thirty years ago, and then Stubbs talking with someone else in the uh, in the map room about Dolores happens thirty years later than the William stuff. 
right? And that's just another sep- completely separate deviation that Dolores has. Yeah, uh, the yeah. my my. F- my my interpretation is she's gone off the reservation twice, and we're going to see it play out twice. Right. Once now, but this is not the first time that she's, like, woken up. And she woke up 30 years ago, and that's related to, like, the whole incident that happened 30 years ago, is you my know, guess. I, I've been thinking a lot, but, like, this is a completely separate point, uh, and it doesn't have that much bearing on what you just said. But I've been thinking a lot about our theories conversation last week, and I think, like, one thing that I would would really – like to focus on just for my own personal life i'm not saying like in this podcast but i'm saying i'm saying i think what it made me realize was like theories are only enriching of one's understanding of the show if like if the theory ends up being true it in some way adds to the themes or adds to the virtuosity of you know what they're trying to create or adds to your appreciation of their craft or something like that but like like a theme, like a theory, like Westworld is on Mars. Like, okay, if that is true, who gives a crap? Like, how how does that enrich your understanding of the show? If Westworld is on Mars, on the other hand, if this two timeline theory is correct, then uh, it gives the Man in Black and and uh, William storyline like a lot of resonance that you can start in one place and end at the other. You know that that, that makes it really interesting to me. Well, um, what's what what I, I agree with you, but I think what's frustrating for the viewer is or what's frustrating for me is if it's true, like I'm spending so much of my mental energy <laughs> trying to figure this thing out and maybe I should just stop and like go along for the ride, but I'm spending so much mental energy figuring this out because I really want to know what Dolores is going through when. Right. I want right. to track Dolores's progress. And if I'm seeing two different Doloreses, it's one Dolores, but at two different times in her life, then um, that's that's the high concept messing with my uh, exploration of this character. It's like in um, in the Prestige. Or can we talk about the spoiler of the Prestige? Yeah. So we'll we'll spoil the Prestige. Okay, we're going to spoil the prestige. In the prestige, we're watching two different characters played by Christian Bale throughout the film, right? Um, because the the whole premise is for this magician to do his trick. He uh, he's twins, right? And he's uh, alternately disguised as this other person um, in their normal life. And and in any given scene, you don't know which Christian Bale which Christian Bale character you're watching, uh, and you don't even know that you're watching two of them until the the end, right? Yep. But that disrupts your whole understanding of this character throughout the film because you're not watching one character go through an arc. You're watching two men, two different men who love two different women behaving erratically, you know, going through <laughs> yeah. this. Like it's, it just really disrupts your entire attachment to that character. And so that's what I'm struggling with with Dolores is I really – Are you saying that's a downside of the, the movie? Because I think it adds to the movie in my opinion. I think it's like, wow, like now you view all those interactions differently because you know the truth. And I feel like if Dolores is in two different timelines in the show, it will be the same thing. It will be like, wow, like I thought she was learning and developing this whole time. Turns out nothing has happened. You know, like she's exactly the same, which I feel like would also add to your understanding. Um, so, I, yeah, go ahead. Partially. I think that's partially true. I think you're partially right. Uh, that that just the fact that she's, you know, all this has happened before and will happen again sort of thing. Yeah. That is interesting. I think that is. But in terms of me as a viewer, I will feel cheated watching what I think is the progression of a character when in any given scene I don't know who I'm watching. 
Do yeah, you know? I, I think that's a completely reasonable reaction. It's not yeah. my personal reaction. Yeah. But I can totally understand, like, why you would feel that way. So, yeah. Um, so let's keep talking about it. Let's keep this theory alive until, <laughs> until okay. there is so much evidence against it. Yes. All that right. you are just willfully disregarding the text of the show. Yes. Uh, which I, I, I'm going to guess is going to come in the next two episodes. <laughs> because <laughs> just like reading interviews with Jimmy Simpson and the creators of the show, I just don't think – I don't know. I think I think you're right that it is still possible, but it just doesn't feel like that's what they're going for. But we'll, there's we'll, just a lot of oddness, like the fact that um, we've been asked by a lot of our listeners to try to use character names as much as possible. So Jimmy Simpson is is William, right? Yeah. So the William character has not interacted. He doesn't interact with Teddy, with Maeve. Um, yeah, you know, like there's just a lot of things. That I mean, and people have gone like really granular on this in terms of like the lengths of the women's skirts in the saloon. But like the fact that they're in the saloon and Maeve is not there at all. Um, and I think you can explain it within episode is that's when she was like pulled and Clementine was was the madam. But it just seems like really convenient and and strange to me. So honestly, until we see Ed Harris, t- uh, who's the man in black, right? Yeah, like bump talk, into talk to William. William yeah. I, I'm going to have a hard time with this. We'll see. We'll see. Uh, so there's a follow-up to last week's episode with regards to uh, Elsie and Bernard and Teresa. Like last week's episode, Elsie uh, saw a uh, host cave his head in with a rock. Uh, and after like carving out what she believed to be like a sign of Orion on you know some of her some of the props in the park, uh, and so this week they kept trying to assess what happened wrong, and they they try to explain it away like maybe it's uh, Samaritan programming like that like maybe it's part of their pre-programmed uh, set paths, but Elsie is not having any of it. Uh, Bernard sur- so Bernard surrenders control of the situation to I think QA right yeah. you you kind of you kind of find out there's like different divisions of Westworld and it's like kind of bureaucratic and they each have like ownership over different things sometimes of the same thing Bernard surrenders control and he's like fine to not have to deal with it but Elsie is still really upset because she thinks like there's clearly something going on here that is is a bigger problem than that these people are willing to acknowledge. Um, she's so, right, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she's I, like the only one who's right. Well, I think me. what's really surprising to me is that like how much crazy shit is allowed to go down in the park without people acting more, like without them doing more to restrain things. And, and, and you see in this episode that they have the ability to like shut down plot lines immediately. Um, so yeah, I agree with you. Like something. Clearly, wrong is happening, uh, and you know Elsie and Maeve. I'm sorry, not Elsie. Uh, Dolores and Maeve having these like crazy visions. That's something that you should theoretically be able to register, you know, in your giant gigantic map, you know, where you're monitoring every single plotline that's happening. Um, and I don't know why it's not being more closely monitored. Maybe it will. Uh, maybe it will be next week. We'll see. But anyway, Bernard responds with complete skepticism and says, hey, like, you're the one who has the creative mind. And look, it's not even Orion. Orion has three stars on the belt, you know, uh, and basically tries to dismiss her concerns. So uh, anything you want to mention about this sequence and and what we learn about Elsie's stuff? I think Elsie is really right that she's the only one not 
with the hidden agenda she, that she we like, met on the broke show. The fourth wall when yeah. she's saying, like, <laughs> why am I the only person who like thinks anything's wrong? You know, yeah. Right. Uh, so you know, I I find her maybe the most sympathetic out of everyone we've met. Right. She's her just and, like her and Dolores and William. I would say are like the most sympathetic characters. Yeah. Um and. Uh, yeah. So QA stands for quality assurance. Is that is that right? I think that's right. Yeah. 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 Okay. I do like that. Elsie is is really has no patience for the QA people for anyone who's not her department messing around with the behavior of the of the bots. So yeah. anyway, I like her a lot. Oh, I'm, uh, I, I skipped the rest of uh, Dolores and William's storyline. Sorry about that. So uh, later on in the episode, let's just finish that off. Uh, William and Dolores go to Las Mudas, which is the town where Lawrence's family lives, um, and. Uh, Dolores sees uh, Lawrence's daughter, uh, who mentions the maze and also like flashes back to like a plotline that I think they Dolores and the daughter were both in, if I'm not, mm-hmm. not mistaken, right? Uh, and so a lot of people have been asking like, what is the deal with the daughter? Like, does is the daughter just kind of some kind of oracle figure, or you know, what is your opinion on, on what's going on with Lawrence's daughter? The way I see it, both well, the man in black sort of by his own steam and Dolores have been set on the path towards this maze. And Lawrence's daughter is like a, a gatekeeper, someone who shows someone to the maze. Right. Yeah. Um, so uh, who used to be part of this other plotline? Cause when we see her in the flashback, she just seems much more innocent, right, than she is now. Right. Um, in that, in a pink dress, uh, it's it's very that scene is very curious, and I urge people to rewatch it if they're trying to grapple with a possible multiple timeline theory. Because uh, the kid is there, is not there on the fountain on the side of the fountain when Dolores walks in, and then she's there, and then she's gone again. Yeah, so, so Dolores is clearly seeing things from like separate. Moments yeah, time, either yeah, right? either she's glitching, she's remembering, or she's yeah, it, either she walks into the town by herself and is in the same town with William uh during two different time periods or something. But anyway, then someone someone that presumably either Stubbs or whoever was in Stubbs positions 30 years ago sent someone to go collect Dolores. She yeah. gives that but- really scary look and uh William William intercedes. That would have been quite a coincidence, don't you think? If uh, if she's off her loop, she's off her loop, and she needs to be collected. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, I think at some point in this episode, she also kind of has this crazy vision, right? Like she's like looking into the light, and she sees kind of the behind the scenes of Westworld, uh, as Maeve does, you know, in the episode as well. Um, so that's worth mentioning. But anyway, at the end, uh, Logan and William like have a shootout where they finally do this bounty, and uh, they find this guy. Uh, who, like, theoretically, uh, Logan refers to as a an, an Easter egg, right? Right. Um, so uh, I, I have the script here. Uh, Logan says, like, relax, man. You have no idea how lucky we just got. Uh, so the bounty hunter they're with is a host. And when Logan hears what this guy they've captured, like, wants to do, he, he just murders the bounty hunter, much to Dolores and William's consternation. Uh, and then uh, Logan says, relax, man. You have no idea how lucky we just got. Uh, and William says, lucky? You, have, you just shot an innocent man. And Logan says, no, he's a robot just like her and just like Slim here, except that Slim works for El Lazo, and El Lazo is our ticket to the best ride in the park. Your bullshit mission led us right to an Easter egg. 
So, end quote. But yeah, that's uh, apparently where they're heading. And it's something that Logan is going to get into uh, as well, apparently. So, uh, uh, the only thing I want to point out about this whole plot line, and this is like the last scene with uh, Dolores and William and Logan, is uh, I I feel like, you know, Logan's callousness is definitely sowing seeds of uh, dissension in the Logan-William relationship, right? And, like, that's going to come back to bite Logan in some way later on, whether, like, Dolores ends up harming him or William ends up betraying him or something like that. Um, anything you want to mention about uh, your thoughts on this scene or this plot line, I should say? Yeah, it seems to me that they're future brother-in-laws. That's my interpretation of this yep. whole thing. And I, it seems also to me that they did not start this trip on, like, the best of terms to begin with. So the more, you know, like I feel, I mean, I, I like all of my in-laws, you know, but like plenty of in-laws don't like each other. So let's just take two guys who are complete opposites and throw them in, in this like high pressure situation and yeah, watch their relationship just completely implode, I think is what we're going to see. So giddy up. Yeah. uh, It should be interesting to see that thing deteriorate. Also, I mean, uh, William basically accuses Logan of being a terrible person because he's harming the robots. W- what do you think of that? Do you think like you have to be a bad person to to harm the robots to harm the hosts? Ah, uh, that's because, such an int- yeah. Because because Logan responds like well, they're just robots. You know, they're just in. They're just like they're not. They don't have consciousness. They're not real. Real. It's not real life. You know, like if someone smashed a, a brick wall with a bat or or like you know took a bat to like a a piece of wood or something like you wouldn't react that way, but because they talk and look like humans, you do react that way. So, you know, is it, does it, is it indicate faulty character or, uh, is, is William overreacting? I guess I can only say from my personal, uh, point of view that if I went to Westworld, I would have trouble shooting robots in the head, considering that they, seem so humanoid and they bleed and and all of this sort of thing i i understand cognitively that they're not humans but uh they're they're so humanoid that and i don't play video games where i shoot a lot of people um that i i just can't imagine myself doing that unless it were you know as william did in defense of you know the clementine character he shoots someone uh and he got shot first before he did that so um I don't know. What do you think? Do you think you could go to Westworld and just shoot people? Yeah, I mean, I think what we just learned moments ago is that you and I should not go to Westworld together. (laughs) Um, Would you shoot everyone in the head? No, I I think that, uh, like, Logan has a point, and it's too bad that he also happens to be an asshole, because otherwise I feel like it would be be a much more sympathetic point he's making, which is, yeah, like, people go to places like this to let out their – to let off some steam, you know, to – to express desires they can't express in polite company, right? And and that's not necessarily bad. Um, I think, right? Well, the, but, the robots I, having consciousness throws a whole wrench into that equation, though. Like, if if the robots can experience pain, you know, if like are are they really experiencing pain, or is it just like a robotic response to pain? Like, there's a lot of questions about like how much suffering is actually happening. Sure, but um, maybe, and maybe this is just like bullshit. Uh, I like I completely hear you, but maybe this is just bullshit rationalization on my part. But if you take a guest character like um, the woman who's with Teddy, whose name is Marty, I believe, uh, she shot plenty of people, but she's chosen a storyline where she's shooting bad guys. 
Right. Right. So there's this like weird veneer of morality over it. Right. Where she's shooting bad people in defense of good people or, you know, like she's chosen a kind of target practice that has a like a moral right behind it. Whereas Logan just shot a bounty. Like he didn't even have to shoot that guy in the head. He could have tied him up. It might have been. Well, more don't forget he like stabbed that old man in the, yeah, with a fork yeah. in the Ugh, hand last week. That's right. right. Yeah. Or a couple weeks know. ago, a couple weeks Log- ago. Logan's a bad dude, you yeah. know. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. Like, I wish, I wish there was a more sympathetic character to make that point. Um, because regardless of whether you think it's okay to harm these things, Logan is still an asshole. So. Well, and I mean, I guess that's kind of Ford's point. I don't know if you think of Ford as more sympathetic, but Ford carving that robot's face open. You know, yeah. he's making that point in a in a less like black hat or obviously black hat kind of way, right? Where he's just like, "This is just meat on circuits," right? Is what these robots are. So on on that note, it seems like black hat and white hat is like an actual. Firstly, it is a term like that terminology is used in our real life today society you know like uh it's often referred to as like different kinds of uh, uh of hacking you know like you can find problems in a system like in a black hat way or a white hat way uh but it seems like it is an accepted nomenclature in the universe of westworld as well uh so uh, i i don't know if that was acknowledged prior to this week but it does seem weird to me that like when he was presented with the choice of the hats i didn't know that it came with moral repercussions uh but you know i guess it does uh, right, or, and Logan's like, go full black hat. Let's yeah, go full exactly. black hat. Yeah. Mm. Can you go full black hat if you're wearing a white hat? You know, like, is it? Anyway, uh, maybe the hat choice is completely separate from the white hat, black hat terminology. Who knows? Um, but it, it is part of the nomenclature of the world. Anyway, uh, just a few other storylines to mention. Firstly, let's talk about what happens with the man in black and with, uh, with Lawrence and Hector and, and Armistice. Uh, basically, he's looking for where the snake lays uh, his eggs, and they go out to this location and they find uh, Armistice uh, bathing. So you got some nice HBO nudity in there, uh, and she is the woman who is played by Ingrid Bolso Birdall, who uh, was a, a member of Eskaton's uh, robbery that we saw in the first episode of the show, I think, right? Uh, but here, the man in black appears to have intercepted her at an earlier point in that plot line, right? Like, it seems like the same robbery plot line because we later see, like, an almost exact recreation of that scene. Right, um, yeah. But he's intercepted her, like, earlier in the plot line, and he wants to know the truth behind this tattoo because he thinks, like, knowing the origin of the tattoo, the tattoo is going to get him to where he wants to go. And where does he want to go, Joanna? Like, what, what, is, what does the man in black say about uh, what he's trying to find this episode? We learn a lot more about it, right? Right, he's got a lot of quotes. Uh, Ed Harris has a lot of a lot of quotes about the world and the nature of it. Um, but he says um, he describes Westworld as a world you can do everything you want except die. Uh, and then he talks about he knows who Arnold is. He says Arnold died right here in the park, but I believe he had one story left to tell, a story with real stakes, real violence. So to me, that's what he's describing. He believes the maze is a place where you can actually – I think he's looking to die in the maze. Mm. Like find find a real confrontation in the middle of the maze, uh, the real world stakes. Because he said in a previous episode, I don't plan to ever go home. So this feels to me like a suicide mission. But you tell me. 
Yeah, I don't know if I agree with that. Um, in fact, one of our uh, listeners, Pat Sponigal, who, who's followed a lot of our, our podcast work, uh, wrote in about this. And I kind of agree with this theory. Like, man, The Man in Black appears to be hunting down a high-level narrative, a hidden high-level narrative of Arnold's uh, that will get him some kind of super se- secret achievement unlocked access to the park workings. Uh, and I assume will make it possible for the androids to harm humans. Why it appears to be part of this narrative too. This weird cult and why it appears to have been only recently added to the story by Ford, but that now doesn't seem to be the case. This can't be a coincidence between Ford's narrative and the Arnold narrative, end quote. We'll get to that in a bit. But it does seem to me that that what uh, the Man in Black is looking for is a way to make the park more real uh, and, and to make it so that there's, like you said, real stakes, real violence. And this is something that, like we already know Arnold's been kind of like messing with the system making it so that these people can these these hosts can become real we know that the man in black is looking for a way to make things more real so it feels like the maze unlocks the secret to like I don't know unlocking unconsciousness in the androids and or making them able to harm humans maybe um, maybe which would of course uh, unleash hell in, in the park uh, but we also get a, a, a real tiny hint of what the man in black actually – like he appears to be a person in the real world. Like there's a lot of debate about is the man in black himself an android playing part of some meta game within the game, you know. Uh, but someone appears to recognize him from the outside world. A, a guest appears to recognize him and said, hey, uh, I just want to say your foundation literally saved my sister's. But before they can finish, uh, the man in black threatens him and says, you know, I'm on my vacation. If you say another word, I'll cut you, like that kind of thing. So it does appear that the man in black is a real person in the outside world. Uh, My question for you, Joanna, your foundation literally saved my sister's what? Life. My sister's life. Maybe. It could be life, Joanna. could be a lot of things. could be like my sister's car. My sister's consciousness into a robot host yeah my Um, sister's haircut like maybe he owns a salon like you just don't know we don't know you don't know what but i think a a good assumption is that he runs some sort of medical charity he seems like a some some big philanthropist yeah like Uh, kind of like a bill gates like yeah and some good guy that's completely at odds with this character that you see inside the park, right. which makes sense. It's sort of like his purge, right? He needs to go and be full black hat in order to go out and be a saint in the real world most of the time. Yeah. Um, I have such a good theory. Okay, let's go ahead. Well, it also, like in this quote that you've uh, written down here, like uh, talking to Lawrence, like, no choice you made was ever your own, the man in black says to Lawrence. What if I told you I was here to set you free? So it does sound like. He's here to break them out of their preordained loops and make it so that they have consciousness, they have, they have the ability to make decisions and potentially harm or kill uh, guests. But, I think you're right, yeah. But, um, so that's what it seems like the man in black is going for. What is your theory? No, just um, – we'll get to it later. We'll, okay, we'll talk yeah, about we'll, it We have our whole like crackpot theory section, so yeah. we'll get to that right at the end. Uh, so anyway – What's what's curious too? Like I read an article uh, in Vulture called "Westworld's Man in Black is a Classic Bad Gamer" by Catherine uh, Van Arendonk, and uh, great article. But what this article is referring to is basically like when you play a game, sometimes there's people who just like try to enjoy the game as the creators have intended, and there's other people who. Uh, kind of ruin the game just by like probing the limits of the game. You know, they will go and tr- like, hey, here's a cutscene. Let's skip past it. 
you know, uh, oh, um, I'm supposed to do it in this preordained route. I'm going to find like another cheat, you know, way using cheats to do it. Hmm. Uh, and oftentimes, like when gamers do this, they ruin the experience for others as well. Uh, and it seems like that's exactly what Ed Harris's Man in Black character is doing. He's like, I don't have time for like this paint by numbers stuff. I, I'm, I need to cut to the end of this. And so he like circumvents the whole jail breakout. You know, he like he. He does all these things to like mess narratively with the with the game, and uh, in doing so, is able to obtain the answer to his question early, uh, which is that the tattoo, uh, the one missing part of the tattoo, is for Arnold, which is like theoretically, I'm sorry, not Arnold, uh, Wyatt, right? Wyatt is a part of this crew that like messed up Armistice's family when she was young, right? And like that's that's where the tattoo came from, so. According to her now, we don't know if that was just implanted the same way it was just implanted into Teddy, right? Right. We don't know if that was just implanted into her, though the man in black, I believe, seems to know who Wyatt is. So, like, you know, Ford Ford just implanted Wyatt into Teddy, and he could have just implanted him into Armistice, but but the man in black already knows who Wyatt is. So Wyatt, so Wyatt wasn't just created two seconds ago by Ford, you know? Right. In theory. Uh- Right, which which uh, is kind of crazy to think about that like this Wyatt uh, person was already an existing part of the mythology, and Ford is building something around it. Like, like basically, Wyatt is not Ford's creation. I think is the big reveal here, right? Or not a new creation. Right. Right. Um. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. This all ties in my bigger theory, but we'll get to that. But what I was going to say is, we get some fun stuff from Hector about. What he believes spiritually, right? Which, uh, what does he say? He says, um, all of it, God's men, everything else will end badly. No one will be saved is what Hector gives us his like religious, you know, his theology to the man in black. And the man in black basically says he believes the same thing. Um, and this will come into play because, you know, Hector later has a conversation with Maeve about his, you know, spirituality of this world, what, what they built around what they know of this world. Yeah. Um, I thought that was interesting. And this is the second, you know, Hector action set piece that we get uh, that's kind of fun versus, you know, episode one. I did want to go back quickly to what you said about that that vulture piece, which sounds really interesting to me. It's funny. I heard a similar thing on the um, – I've been listening to the Bald Move podcast on Westworld, which, like, loath as I am to give my competition some boost. Uh, all their episodes are, like, two and a half hours long. They go really deep on every uh, single episode. And uh, – they're gamers. I'm not. So I found it interesting for them to talk about Logan and William as two different kinds of players where Logan is the kind of player where like you're a new guy. You go over to Logan's house. You never play the game. Logan's played the game a million times. You want to explore the game in your own way. And Logan's like, no, no, that's boring. Let's do it this way. Yeah. No, no, skip past that. Let's do, you know, that's not important. Let's do this. So like Logan as a bad gamer, a different kind of bad gamer as yeah. well as the man in black. I thought it was interesting. So. I agree. Yeah. That's totally uh, dead on like representation of what those kinds of gamers are. Yeah. <laughs> And I think a lot of us have been the William character and know how frustrating that is. So that's why Logan is an especially irritating character to me. Um, not to say I have not been Logan at times in my life. But <laughs> yeah. um, but uh, Eschaton, Hector Eschaton, uh, interesting name for yes. a character. Uh, Eschaton, of course, is uh, a noun uh, in theology that represents the end of the world. So uh, not super... Continuing the Nolan, uh, you know, strategy of making a uh, name 
be a on the nose representation of what that character is supposed to be. Um, but- I read a I read a new. Sorry, please tell me to shut up if I'm like coming in with too many theories. But I would never tell you. I read a fun theory today um, about Teddy being sort of the nuclear option. Uh, Teddy flood, as in biblical flood, as in like wash it all clean. And since Teddy can just like kill anyone except for that group of whites men who came after him last week, but like Teddy can just mow people down. Teddy is like a cleansing flood option. Um, and we see him hook up with a man in black. So I don't know. That was that was a fun thing. Like all the sort of biblical options or, or religious options with with these things and. Um, that's that's gotten me thinking also about the the word hosts like hosts as in like you know we're here to be your host but also hosts is the common term you use with angels a host of angels and since we're dealing with these like god and devil and or fallen the, he- the angels, heavenly hosts yeah. the heavenly hosts right a host of angels so like if we're dealing with like ford is a god figure the man in black is a devil figure or the man in black is a lucifer figure or something like that and fallen angels um these are all just like the way too much inside my head uh, way I have of, of thinking about the names on this show. I think it's entirely plausible, you know, that the names have uh, a lot of symbolism in the show. So I, I don't think that is uh, off the table. But Eschaton, uh, definitely. It's spelled differently, but, like, yeah. definitely. Yeah. 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 Uh, and I think, like, m- you know, Maeve's uh, name uh, according to Pat Sponagle, who wrote into decodingwestworld.gmail.com, is Irish for a myth, uh, mythological and magical queen. Queen um, Mab. Yeah. Queen Mab. Shakespeare yeah. had a fairy queen named Mab, which is derived from the same Irish root uh, Medbe. You know, um, so you know that that could be tying in, to, given that uh, Maeve is seeing a bunch of stuff that's like otherworldly in this episode. But we'll get to that in a second. Uh, you mentioned how Teddy hooks up with the man in black. Teddy was not killed last week, apparently, uh, and just was strung up to die in this episode in, like, a very uncomfortable situation. I felt bad for James Marsden seeing that. I was like, how many takes did they have to do of him tied up to that tree in, like, an incredibly, you know, (laughs) uncomfortable position? Uh, And I was also disappointed that Teddy doesn't die in every episode. I thought that would be a nice recurring trope. Uh, all right, just two more plot lines to discuss, uh, and then we'll get to theories. But uh, yeah, Teresa uh, goes to see Ford in the park. There's this gigantic Earth mover that looks incredible, um, where you know Ford's like rearranging everything, and they have like a confrontation where Ford is trying to like explain, "Hey, you should give me the time and the resources to do what I need to do," um, and Teresa's trying to say like, "Hey, let's just." Why, why don't we take a more conventional path, pretty much, right, is what I feel like she's trying to do. And Ford says, like, I've seen many of you, uh, like, company people, and I've outlasted many of you. That's the dynamic. You know, I'm obviously not re- reciting the dialogue exactly as it was. Um, but then Arnold – I'm sorry, Ford. I keep saying Arnold instead of Ford. But Ford, in a stunning display of power, uh, is able to freeze all the hosts in position Yeah, uh, it, with, with – no seeming like way that we can determine based on what we see on screen, right? Like maybe I yeah. think we we see him flick his finger to sort of release him. Right. So and we we saw him do the finger gesture before with the snake. 
Yeah, but I assume so, that like the snake needed to like see the finger gesture. Yeah, you know, like there's no way all those people in the field like saw him do it. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So like, what is what is he do? Like, does he have like implants built into his hands? You know, like who knows what's going on there? But either way, it's an incredibly effective sequence. Um, One of my favorite uh, sort of little moments in in this scene and and the commenter in our live chat room just reminded me Zappa Johns is that. Um, we see someone on Reddit did a side by side of these, so that's how I noticed it. But all like all of the hosts that Sizemore built for his Odyssey on the Red River journey mm. were being used to dig the trenches for Ford's new plotline, and it was like a monk and a saloon girl, and a, like it didn't. They weren't dressed for labor. They were just like these the all the people that Sizemore built. Uh, were being used for Ford's new plotline, which seemed like a pretty vindictive move on Ford's part. So, <laughs> well, maybe he's just making good use of resources. Uh, but I did like the idea that you know, at the end of that scene, you see the Earth Mover tearing into the field. Uh, which uh, apparently, like that section of the park, has been around for ages, right? Since so, Ter- since Teresa was a little girl, right? So it's, Ford is really like tearing old things up and and reinstating the new. He also mentions to Teresa, like, hey, uh, they already sent a representative. The board already sent a representative. I thought they would have told you. Basically also, like, as a power move saying, I know more about the board's machinations than you. Uh, so, yeah, I really I really like this whole scene. It's very well executed. and Scary. Kind of, yeah, establishes this power dynamic in a way that's, like, yeah, pretty threatening. You know, like, not not kind, not collegial between coworkers. Uh, and Ford is a force to be reckoned with. Yeah, the mind fuck of him bringing her to this table where she was there with, you know, with her family as a child and then basically saying he's going to tear it down, like her memory of the park, right. uh, his complete reading of her. And then, yeah, this tantalizing line when he said, you know, they already sent a representative. I thought they would have told you. Some people are theorizing that representative is already in the park. So is it Logan if Logan's on the current timeline since he mentioned having a stake in the company? Is it the man in black? Is he a representative? Or is it someone we haven't seen but is already on their way? Um and the only reason I mentioned that as an option is I know Tessa Thompson is – the actress Tessa Thompson is in this show. And she said in an interview that she was playing some, some, someone behind the scenes. So that would be my my best guess as to who the board is sending would be actress Tessa Thompson from Creed and the upcoming Thor Ragnarok. Uh, I'm eager to see her since she's a performer I really like. And I think it's crazy we haven't met her yet. So, Yeah. Yeah, so uh, some open questions like who is uh, the, per- the representative. I think one thing that people brought up, uh, you know, I, I do a weekly Periscope about, uh, uh, about Westworld. Just to kind of get my thoughts out, kind of prepare myself for this podcast, to be honest, uh, and work out any theories that are stupid that I shouldn't mention or, or like things that I should mention. But one thing someone asked in the Periscope this week uh, was like does – Ford in this scene confirmed that Bernard is uh, is a is a host, right? Because he does mention Bernard. I, I don't think he confirms he's a host, right? Do you know what I'm talking uh, about? Um, yeah, I think I think he could know what they were up to, even if they were just two humans, sort of have it conducting an affair. They thought on the sly, and he's like, "Listen, I know everything that goes on here." Um, 
but I don't think there was any confirmation right. about Here, Bernard being a host. Here's the exact wording. We know everything about our guests, don't we, as we know everything about our employees. I do hope you'll be careful with Bernard. He has a sensitive disposition. Yeah. Now, th- that is a very creepy way of saying that, but he could just be – it could just be forward saying like, I know you two are friends with benefits and like yeah. just be careful. You know, I mean like, you know that I think Bernard is a host. Right. Right. But I don't. But the think way he said it was so creepy. I was like, maybe Bernard is a host. You know, like that's yeah. uh, again, no word, no evidence in the text to support that. But it, it, the way he said it was so like, you know, it, it just was a very off kilter way of saying it. Uh, that it just seemed to imply there was something going on there more than just you know Bernard uh, and her sleeping together. So I agree with you. Finally, the last storyline, Maeve. Uh, we see a, like, a close-up shot of, of uh, Maeve's face in this episode that mirrors a shot we saw from last week um, with her kind of having a flashback. She, she remembers a shootout. Um, what a horrifying scene, by the way, like being able – being conscious for your own death and getting like sterilized and all that stuff. Uh, and she sees like these people – uh, that work at Delos Corporation kind of doing the cl- the cleaning up. This is kind of a shout-out, I think, <coughs> to the original Westworld film. Okay. Uh, where whenever whenever they had a reset, they'd have, like, these stagehands come out and, and do it. Like, these basically are the equivalent of the stagehands, right? They're, except they have a much higher-tech suit. They're, they have, like, gas masks on or, like, breathing apparatuses, and they have, like, all this protection on. Um but she sees them and then like she tries to draw it and then when she tries to put the drawing away, uh, she finds that she's already stashed many drawings there, which is an incredibly frightening and effective scene. Uh, it's like a pa- you know, it's like a past version of herself trying to communicate with her that she can't remember. Yeah. It reminds me of an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation called Cause and Effect where the crew was trapped in a time loop and they tried to send messages to future instances of the time loop to try and like warn them of what was happening. Very much like this where past versions of Maeve have been communicating with Maeve. Um, and, you know, that, that's another, you know, another sign that like this show is playing fast and loose with the timeline is like uh, this is the first time we've seen like Maeve really get bothered, but like much time has been passing. You know what I mean? Like, we haven't seen right. the past Maeve instances. So, like, who knows what time we're in right now, right? Right. How many times has she woken up to this, right? Um, and wait, in, that epi- in that Star Trek episode, did they communicate with playing cards? Is that how they do it? Uh, the, the playing end. cards are part of it. Basically, yeah. uh, basically they um, they program data yeah. to send messages to future instances of data. Yeah. And, like, one key plot point is that they're playing cards. And then so, like um, – at one point, at one very effective point in the episode, they start being able to predict what hands Data is going to deal. Right. Uh, and then later in the episode, Data sends a message to himself to deal like different things. So then the same scene plays out and they're trying to predict the cards. But then uh, it's not the cards that they're predicting. So like, huh. Well, I thought I was – anyway, it's a really effective episode. I really liked it. Yeah. Uh, but it's cause and effect. That's a Star Trek TNG episode. And uh, this episode certainly has echoes of that. Nice. Um, nice. Yeah. Uh, all the TNG episodes, I think, are – next generation of episodes, I believe, are available on Netflix. So Yeah, uh, good they are. But, uh, okay, so what was really mind-bending about this this uh, element, firstly, like when she discovers the underground thing, uh, amazing performance by Tandy Newton, uh, just like realizing the horror of what's going on. 
later on, uh, she sees like a Native American girl has a, a, a figurine that's like this, right? Mm-hmm. So then the men in spacesuits are already part of the mythology of the Westworld universe. But the question right. I the question I asked when I when I did my Periscope and was ta- reflecting on this is, you know, I can understand the desire to make them part of the Westworld, like the Native American mythology, because then you have something you can use to explain when people see the behind-the-scenes stuff. But if that's the case, why wouldn't you program Maeve with knowledge of that? You know, why would you make that something that she needs to find out? Do you know what I'm saying? Or, or why wouldn't they just scrub this? <laughs> like, I feel like they sh- they are sloppy, and they should have scrubbed it entirely from... Well, no. I, I mean, I feel like what we're seeing is that, like... Potentially, there's like dormant programming that's causing people to do things like remember things they're supposed to forget or uh, come to life when they're in sleep mode, which we've seen right. two times already. You know, so I feel like okay, they tried to scrub it, but maybe Arnold put something in there that like futzes with it, you know, and that's what's the effects of what we're seeing. So no, but I mean, like, why wouldn't the programmers, who are in theory in control of every single blade of grass in the park? Why wouldn't they scrub all mention or thought of like? Shouldn't they know that the drawings are under the baseboards? Right. And shouldn't they know that that's yeah. that sketch from the Native American little that little statue exists? Like, sh- like uh, I, I feel like we're gonna see. Well, I think they definitely know the statue exists. Like the reason they implanted mm-hmm. that in in that culture in the realm of the universe is so that people would be able to explain away. Sightings of the the spacesuit guys. Right? Uh, yeah, I understand that. That's that's one interpretation, and it, and it might be you might be right. You you're often right, but uh, I, another interpretation is that this is just a thing that's bled in from all the people who have like woken up and seen it. It's not like something control that that the behind the scenes people implanted, but rather something that's bled into their inherited mythology. To me, it seems like sloppiness on the part of uh, the the park techs, but I could be wrong, and you could be right that that happens sometimes. Well, the, the park techs are definitely being sloppy. Uh, there's no dispute on my end about that. Um, right. Otherwise, they'd be catching all this crazy shit going down. Um, but anyway, <laughs> uh, then an amazing final sequence where Maeve like interrogates Eskaton while unlocking the safe. They cut into her. They find a bullet. Right? Yeah. Come on, guys. Sloppy. Sloppy, sloppy tech. Slo- sloppy, sloppy <laughs> maintenance of the park. I, that's just garbage. Gar- <laughs> you should be ashamed of yourselves, you know? Anyway, yeah. they find the bullet, and then Maeve's like, hey, none of this matters, which is like an amazing moment. You know, she realizes, hey, we are in a time loop. I can do what I, can do what I want, you know? Yeah. I can, I can make out with uh, Mr. Eskaton here, and everything's going to be fine. And, so good. Yeah, and it, like amazing editing, cutting between the safe and and you know the Q and A, pretty good stuff. Um, anything else you want to say, or shall we go straight into theories? And then in theory, they die in a hail of bullets, right? Because the bullets like rain through the door, though we don't see the bullets right. hit them. But right. yeah, but presumably they die. Yeah, uh, very stylish way to end. And of course, this episode was directed by Vincenzo Natali, who I'm hoping we'll have a chance to interview in the next week or two. Uh, about this episode um he uh is a super talented guy and uh, i'm a huge fan of his work so uh and, and so like little touches like that i feel like hmm, that might be vincenzo natale's at work uh, <laughs> he did that that great horse episode of hannibal right correct, correct. yeah he also made a very creepy disturbing film called splice 
but anyway, <clears throat> so uh, let's talk about theories, Jana. Uh, some crazy theories we should mention, right? Sure. I'll, I'll get us kicked off, okay? All right. Go the, the The big crazy theory is that, and, and actually, I believe this theory. Okay, so I'm not even. I'm just. I'm just. I'm not just putting it out to mock it. I, I actually believe it. Is the piano guy in Ford's office is Arnold or a host version of Arnold? Hmm. Uh, reason I think this. Firstly, uh, the piano is like a huge part of the opening credit sequence. Uh, this week, the piano song is The Cure, right? For Forest, is that right? A Forest, yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's the, the song that is on the player piano this week. But uh, if you look at the photo from of, of Arnold that Ford shows last week and look at the player piano guy in Ford's office, it does appear that they are the same person. You were talking I... about the prestige earlier today. And that's a situation where basically you put a beard on someone and they're like the same guy, but they look kind of different. Uh, seems like, you know, maybe Arnold isn't too far. So this is a, this is a theory that listener, friend of the show, Jesse Carp first floated to me last week. And I have looked so closely at the photo <laughs> and so closely at every angle of the, of the guy playing the piano and I, I cannot tell you with any confidence that it's the same person. But you're exactly right. You both invoke the prestige here. Like the, the thing about the prestige is to hide the guy in plain sight, which is exactly what the, p- the player piano guy in the office would do. There's in that scene, if you watch it, it's when Ford is telling Bernard all about Arnold. At one point, he just like looks directly at the player piano guy while talking about Arnold. Yeah. So if you want to rewatch that scene with the idea that the player piano guy is Arnold, um, I think I think there's a case for that. Um, but to, to my earlier point, like, does that add to our? Does it deepen our understanding of the show? I don't know that I, it does. Like, I'm. I, I, yeah. Go ahead. I, I think more explanation is required before like we understand why Ford is keeping a host version of Arnold in his office. Uh, but if there is an explanation for that, it could be interesting. So I don't know that that's – like if that's true, is that – if that's Arnold in his office, like does that automatically make it more interesting? I don't I don't know. But it could. There could be something there that, that could make it more interesting. So I'm still enamored of the idea that Arnold's consciousness has been downloaded into Bernard. So that's what I'm sticking with. Um, so I, I saw a theory that Arnold's consciousness has been downloaded into like the player piano and like he's actually just – and he loves the cure. Yeah, no, like he is the player <laughs> piano. Like he, that's who he is, uh, which I, I think is pretty crazy. But I do, I do think it's worth mentioning that, uh, and we already talked about it earlier that like uh, the Man in Black's version of Arnold's death is very similar to Ford's version of Arnold's death, which is not something that like you know we thought that Ford was just lying through his teeth the whole time talking about Arnold's death, but it does seem like that's another person that's corroborating it. So sure, true, true. All right, Joanna. Any uh, any crazy theories to report on? Here's my theory. Tell me a theory. Um, that Ford Ford obviously obviously knows the Man in Black is in the park, and in fact, well, am I allowed to talk about the next time on preview? We have I, I a rule about the not, song game. I prefer okay. not. But. Okay. So, but but like even without that, right? Okay. So Ford Ford obviously knows the Man in Black is in the park, right? He knows everything. He knows he's there. In in theory, he probably knows that he's looking for the maze, right? 
uh, is it a coincidence then that Dolores is set on the path for the maze? So we have the man in black looking for the maze and then Dolores via Bernard is set on a path to the maze. Okay. So you've got these two figures closing in on the maze. And my guess is that the season ends with the two of them at the center of the maze. That would be my guess. Mm. Uh, If Dolores and the man in black knew each other 30 years ago, like, is she some kind of weakness for him? We've already seen him encounter her, obviously. But, like, is she some kind of... Will this confrontation be very emotional for him and drag dredge up who he was 30 years ago? Is she the ultimate weapon against him hmm. or the best weapon? You know, now that you, me- now that you mention it, he does say something along the lines of let's start at the beginning, Dolores. Yeah, he does right? do that. Let's, and, go, let's take it back to the beginning. Right. Yeah. And if, if uh, William is like an earlier version of the man in black, then it's like that would be the beginning. But, right. but he says it like ominously. He says it like, let's start at the beginning, uh, basically before I rape you. Or, or may, may, okay, here's a theory, Jonna. We don't know he that he raped her. Maybe he doesn't rape her. I don't think scene. he did. I don't think he did. Maybe I he's really like don't. cutting off her scalp in that scene so he can get, <laughs> the, get the maze map or something. Right. I think it has to do with the map. I don't think he raped her in that scene. Mm. Because, uh, you know, the man in black, he doesn't he just seem over raping people like he's already like he's been there for 30 years he's like raping Dolores would bring him no interest or pleasure killing Teddy brought him no interest or pleasure do you know it's just sort of like he's going through the motions but he knows he needs to like talk to Dolores because maybe he was there at the maze with her 30 years ago and needs to and he, he him talking to her helps set everything in motion I don't know all right well we'll see I think I'm wary of putting too much time into this man in black is William theory just because if it turns out to not be true, won't, won't all this time we spent discussing it have been totally wasted? Like what do you – how do you feel about that? Ah, see, I don't know wasted. This is what we talked about last week where I'm just conscious that if he's not William, um, no one's allowed to be disappointed because it's not something that the show ever promised you, right? Um, or you can be disappointed if you want. I just think it's unproductive. You know, like we talked about this, like theories are fun and fine as long as you realize that you're right. probably wrong and that the answer is probably more straightforward than you think. And, you know, everyone's on the same I, time. I, I think the reason I bring it up is because if it's not true, I'm frustrated that the show made it feel like it is so plausible. Do you know, like because the show could have easily removed doubt that that's the case by now could have easily made it so that you, you're sure that they're different people by now with just like. You know, William bumping into, you know, the man in black on his way into town or whatever. You know what I mean? Like, they could have made it 100% clear, and they didn't. And maybe it's because they couldn't schedule Jimmy Simpson and Ed Harris for the same shoot. <laughs> you know? Or because Jimmy Simpson was cast later, which he was. Um, but you, you know what I'm saying? Like, but that, that's kind of where my question comes from is like, uh, is like, I'll be frustrated at the end because the show made it seem like it was possible and, it, and then it didn't end up. Happening. Well, I mean, like, let's say they are on the same timeline and the sh- and like uh, the showrunners um, had no idea that anyone would come up with this theory. 
Do you know? It's sort of like, um, you know, let's go back to Game of Thrones if we want to. Like the the Bravos Fight Club theory that people had that like that Arya was the waif was like Arya's manifestation or whatever. And they were looking for evidence for this all the time. But like I a hundred percent guarantee you that's not something that ever occurred to the showrunners because it was not the truth. So then it's not their responsibility to prove to you that the theory that you made up is not true. Right. It's not the right. show's responsibility to have William and the man in black meet and be like, well, howdy different person altogether just to prove something to no, you. You're right. You're right. If they didn't know you were going to come up with it. But I do believe something funky is happening with the timeline that they are intentionally manipulating in a very Nolan way. Just like, I mean, I think the prestige is a really good, like go rewatch the prestige. It's a really good comparison here of the, um, I mean, on multiple levels of, of the art of misdirect. Um, so I believe that they are trying to do something very funky with the timeline, which is just really hard and crazy to do over 10 hours. That's, that's yeah. the point I keep coming back to, that this Nolan-esque sort of messing with, with plots is um, a tricky thing to do without actively deceiving your audience not just like omitting information but actively consciously cutting things together in order to deceive your audience and that rubs me a little bit the wrong way do you know yep i totally agree uh peter serretta editor-in-chief at slashfilm.com is listening to us right now and he told me to bring up one of the silliest theories that i've heard okay Which is that Bernard is Ford's android recreation of Arnold. And uh, the reason – I mean that theory in and of itself is, is fine. That's it's, my theory. Yeah. 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 But, 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 uh, but that the reason we know that is because Bernard Lowe is an, is an anagram right, right. for Arnold Weber. Now, I know what you're thinking. Is Weber Arnold's last name? Uh, we don't know. We don't know <laughs> if it's his last name. So – but if you listen to the ones who knock our our Breaking Bad podcast, you'll know that David hates anagrams. So cross- because, because the reason I hate anagrams, by the way, is just that like they are, <coughs> in my opinion, the most extreme form of crack pottery that almost never pans out. But then, unfortunately, I was proven wrong this season uh, of Better Call Saul when the show titles actually did spell out an anagram for a major character's name, and um, it really upset me. It really upset me. It delegitimized my entire uh, stance that we should never pay attention to people who think anagrams are a good way of decoding shows. Um, but Bernard Lowe is an anagram for Arnold Weber if Weber is, in fact, Arnold's name, which we don't know if it is or not. Um, but, yeah. What do you think of that, Joanna? Do you think, do you think the anagram is going to come into play? I mean, I'd love for it to mostly because it would irritate you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it would drive like it would make me question the nature of my reality. I know, I know. Yeah. Um, it, but but the anagram thing actually is pertinent here because um, you know the creators of Better Call Saul put this little anagram thing in the in the episode titles of the second season of Better Call Saul as an Easter egg they thought the viewers would never find or find sometime over the summer. You know, like they basically the viewers caught on way quicker. Um 
than Vince Gilligan and Peter Gould thought they would. And Vince Gilligan and Peter Gould had to be like, Welp, you got us. Oops, we thought we were being really clever, but we forgot that Reddit has a, like an unending amount of time on their hands, right? So I think that might be the same thing about the William Mann and Blackpot line is like the Nolans were like, oh man, this is going to blow their mind. And then like as soon as William appears, someone on Reddit's like, hey, the logos are different. <laughs> and then like all season we're obsessing over this, whereas the Nolans were like, oh, we're going to prestige them and they are going to go like, what? Christian Bale's two people. Um, instead, you've got this like very – bright, active, engaged community on Reddit figuring your shit out, showrunners. So yeah, it's hard. The, the logo difference, you know, what you're referring to is that in episode two of the show, you see a logo of Westworld that is different than the logo we see in episode one. Like when William shows up, the logo is different. Uh, and so then there's speculation that the reason that's the case is because it's in, it's in a different uh, period of time. Uh, but it could also just be as simple as like uh, they had to reshoot a bunch of stuff for the pilot or the first few episodes. And no, maybe- but you see, you see the modern logo continuously in the backstage, and you see that logo that oh that was on the platform where William arrived. The only other place you see it is in the changing room when he gets ready, and wait for it on Anthony Hopkins' old lab coat when you flash back to CGI Anthony Hopkins. Uh, so mm. those are the three times we've seen okay, the old okay, logo. Okay, but wouldn't the robots that were older, right, have operated more like that cowboy robot that zipped himself up in the bag? You know, but we're talking about two different, two different timelines. There's the beginning of the park. And then there's the incident thirty years ago, and Jonah Nolan has said that the park is not thirty years old. That there was a period, there was a long period of time where the park existed before the incident of thirty years ago. Damn, so, you're good, Joanna. Damn, I'm you're re- good. I'm, I'm I keep trying to trip you up. I'm ready. <laughs> and it's not working. It yeah. is not working. All right. All right, Joanna. I'll climb back on this uh, William is the Man in Black theory train for at I mean, least just, a couple more weeks. Just watch Ed Harris and Jimmy Simpson share shots together next week. Yeah, and they're we'll just going to – like it's going to be their opening <laughs> scene is they're going to yeah. bump into each other. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Will you eat crow at that time? Public, sure. Publicly on the show, yes? Um, you know me. I'm, I'm game for admitting when I'm wrong. Sure. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, that's going to bring us to the end of this week's episode of Decoding Westworld. Joanna, per our predictions, you know, we started this each episode at like 30, 40 minutes. Uh, four episodes in, this episode is an hour and 20 minutes long. <laughs> so I anticipate the times will get even longer as uh, the season wears on. But in the meantime, Joanna, where can people find more of your work on the internet this week? Um, I'm on four podcasts this week. You can hear me on Storm of Spoilers, Fighting in the War Room, Little Gold Men, and this podcast, Decoding Westworld. You can find me on VanityFair.com or you can follow me on Twitter at Jerothis. Find all my stuff at DaveChen.me and find my film The Primary Instinct at ThePrimaryInstinct.com. You can also watch it for free on Hulu right now if you have a subscription to Hulu. Uh, email us at decodingwestworld at gmail.com. Find more episodes of our podcast at decodingwestworld.com. We'll see you guys next week. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 